glad you could join. It's been, I think, ages I've been trying to get everybody on the TV. I know, I know, right? Hi, I'm Julian, and this is the WLB Podcast. Welcome everyone to our podcast. Today we have with us Megha Bhagat, who is the founder of Project Defy, co-founder of Project Defy, which is an organization that is focused on democratizing education. And I think like this is like the third or fourth episode I'm doing focusing on education because I, I understand it's so essential and how we really need to fix all of the problems that we know exist in our current education system and to nip it right at the bud. Uh, what I really love about Defy is the concept of nooks, and I've been following them for like right from the start when they started because I know makeup for for some time, and they they have this concept of nooks where they everybody regardless of their age is enrolled and they have hands-on. Uh, I mean, everything is hands-on. Like they are given transistors, they are given uh, computers to work with and build and break and. It's an amazing way to learn any any concept. Uh, if you ask me, like I, I was a nerd in school, and I re- I really don't know why I was cramming up all the history. <laughs> so I am in, in love with this entire concept, and I'm gl- really uh, happy that Megha has finally joined us, and I'm excited to hear all about it. So right from the co-founder herself. So thank you for joining us, Megha. Thank you so much. But I'm glad we were able to finally do this. <laughs> How are you? How are you? Good. It's 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 been an interesting, I would say, what two years now, like right since we hit the pandemic, and we, you know, all of us are trying to stay sane. And um, you know, as I think is true with most nonprofits, we are all trying to stay relevant, trying to make sure that um you know we don't die out and the, the never ending cycles but uh, but yeah i think we have we we have seen the pandemic we have survived it out um, we've done nice. some new interesting things so yeah it keeps us excited that's amazing i'm all ears to start uh, to begin with uh, could you begin uh, uh, with giving our listeners a quick uh, flashback to uh, what was the moment when you realized like you have to start this organization i know you've been part of a lot of educational uh, social causes and you've been part of a lot of movements on what's right and what's inclusive but when did education catch your attention sure so uh, for me i think education and the way it is uh, working and is currently functional has always been on the mind and that's probably got a lot to do with my own personal experiences so just like i think most of us i went to the traditional school system university system and the one thing that um, happened to me that i think also happens to a lot of young people is that i didn't fit in now what that means really is that what the schools propagate to teach us right what the schools mm-hmm. think are the skills we should have but not necessarily aligned with what i wanted to do right so uh, for me i was i was more of a creative person i loved uh, i could spend like my whole time in libraries 
and just gorging on those books, the stories. And yet what it seemed like is that uh, if I didn't have the algebra algorithms figured perfect, I wasn't necessarily a good kid, right? Um, marks and how you score in examinations became the only way I was being assessed, right? And, and I remember uh, way back in 11th grade, uh, when I was transitioning from 10th grade to 11th grade, and I told my family, I told my teachers that, you know what, I don't think I'm meant to study sciences. And I really think I want to become a lawyer. I want to study the law, the legal system, because because just that interests me more. And I was just told that, you know, but, um, and this is, I'm talking way back in the 90s, right? And I was just told that, you know, that's not what you should be doing. And I was shoved into the science stream. And I just struggled through my high school. I struggled, uh, you know, really finding a place in the world simply because the system had decided for me of mm -hmm. what fitting in the world meant, right? It, it mm -hmm. did not care about what I felt I could do. It did not care about what interested me. It did not care about any of that. And I think I've carried mm -hmm. that on. I think mm -hmm. it's for young, young people, uh, their foundations come from there, right? Of mm -hmm. how you would treat it as an economic asset in the future and not necessarily a human being uh, right then and there, right? Yeah. So that played out uh, for me. I, I fought literally a war, I will say, to go to law school, to be able to pursue legal studies. Um, and then I fought a bigger war to study human rights as my specialization. And, and this is interesting that um, in a university of, uh, we were an affiliated college to a university. There are about 700 students enrolled that year in law. And I was the only student that um, wanted to pursue human rights. And I had a system turn back to me and tell me that why? You know, you should just you should just study whatever everybody else is studying because hey, you know, in the larger schematics of things, it didn't matter. And I think that always uh, dictated my choices. So I went into the uh, development sector, into social impact sector, simply because I think I was fundamentally frustrated with the way the education system and therefore the market system really looked at an individual as somebody who's either useful for the market or is not, right? And, and that's it, right? There's nothing else. And so uh, back in 2014, uh, I, of course, graduated from uh, my master's and I did a bunch of different things um, which were in the development sector. And then I was working with young girls, um, trying to get them excited about uh, building technology tools to solve problems. And, and then back in 2014, I met my co-founder, Abhijit, um, young, passionate man right out of university. He was brand new out of university. And his frustration was exactly the same, right? Which was that uh, university and schools don't give us anything. But he was braver than I, and he actually started experimenting with um, the first ever model of MOOC in a village outside Bangalore. And, uh, and we met at a conference, we started talking, and we just realized that both of us were really thinking about it, about the problem from the mm -hmm. same level. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was like, okay, um, this is what 
here, here is someone who is actually attempting an experiment to say if this current oppressive educational system has to go, what can replace it, right? Yeah. And and therefore, um, we got together back in 2014, started experimenting uh, in that village a little more, we built out the experiment a little more, and that's that's actually where Defy started and uh, began its journey uh, back all those years ago, uh, you know, where in a small village where in a room with just some tools, donated laptops, and mm -hmm. uh, and a borrowed internet connection, we got people together and said, let's see what comes out of it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's where we, that's where the story begins for us. That's amazing. I think 2015 is when I met you and when you were educating STEM, like how technology is the right place and that's that's where i met you for the conference for ghi conference wow i didn't know this was uh, something you were already working on that time amazing <laughs> so is uh, project defy uh, registered as a as an organization uh, ngo or a school like what is the category that it falls under so we are a non-profit organization so uh, we are registered here in India. Uh, we've been we're about four years old now, and uh, yeah, and we work across the globe as a nonprofit. Wow. So where else other than India uh, do you have nooks that are functional? Uh, and are they physically are they running even now? Yes. So interestingly, outside India, our nooks have been able to open up. Um, mm -hmm. So we uh, we've set up ourselves in Rwanda. We are in we're just coming up in Uganda. We are uh, in Zimbabwe at two locations, wow. and uh, and we've just recently also set up a nook in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are globally. Um, Anuks outside have been able to get up and running at least in the past seven months uh, outside the country and in mm -hmm. India, of course, the reality is that we had to close down the spaces, mm -hmm. uh, and pivot to a uh, mobile learning program. Mm -hmm. Nice. So do you have apps or like, could you just explain how do you function, uh, like in an, in a nook once a person is registered, how does yeah. it go by? Yeah. yeah. So the nook is actually a physical space. Um, it's about a thousand square feet of a space inside a marginalized community. The one data point that stays same for us uh, of wherever we go is that we work with severely marginalized communities, whether socially, economically, uh, historically, right? So uh, we take a thousand feet square space and we power it up with basic tech, which is about 10 laptops, one internet connection. A bunch of initial tools, so mm -hmm. you know, uh, Arduino's on one side, art and craft on the other side, mm -hmm. drills on the other side, carpentry stuff uh, also in the same room. So a bunch of very different, interesting things mm -hmm. um, that come up, right? Uh, and then we open it up to the community. And uh, what we do initially is when we invite people in. We sit down with them and we actually do a very deep dive conversation on you know if you didn't have all these restrictions of poverty or gender or all of that mm -hmm. what would you really do right mm -hmm. and, and i don't know how many old teachers or school systems ask this question right I'm not, 
I'm sure they ask you, what do you want to become in the future, right? But that question is very aligned to, you know, which corporate wants you for what, right? It's uh, right? So we, we go through this huge deep dive process here. People, when they start coming in and they start seeing these things that are there, right? So the space from a design lens has been designed to interest and to excite initial curiosity, right? And curiosity is something that never dies, right? Um, you will see it in a 61-year-old grandmother and you will see it in a seven-year-old young boy, right? And, and when they see these materials, they, they start coming in, they're hesitant to touch it initially. And so while they're exploring all this, we start setting up conversations with them, right? And, and we start really getting into, tell me what would you choose to do? You know, don't tell me what your parents want you to do. Don't tell me um, what, uh, you know, when you were younger, your dad and mom wanted you to do, your husband wanted you to do. But tell me, what do you really think you want to be doing for yourself? And that leads to people actually taking a breath and actually thinking for themselves. So what changes there is that suddenly the choice is back in their hands, right? It's about their agency now, right? And the thing about agency is that you can't palpably, you know, really say that this is how it changed. But what you start seeing is the shifts that start coming in the space. So once they tell us what they're really excited about doing, um, we try to help them break it down into milestones, right? So I'm a young girl and I want to be a radio jockey, right? Now, how do you become a radio jockey, correct? So then the girl herself breaks it down into milestones for herself, right? And you can take different paths to be a radio jockey. You can absolutely go to a college and learn to be a radio jockey totally absolutely legit um you can go on youtube and learn uh, diction tone lighting script writing and also build the skills in the pathway to be an rj right you can also um uh, talk to people who are rjs and find them on the internet and and kind of shadow them uh, and figure out how to do one, right? So there's so many different ways you can, right? Um, so when they do this and they start thinking for themselves, then they build for themselves what we call uh, project goals. And project goals are usually three months uh, in duration in which they complete something. So what that connects to is a huge sense of accomplishment right it's especially for these communities that are constantly traditionally being told that they're not good enough that they're only meant for certain jobs they're only meant for certain things in life three months achieving a goal shifts in their head what is known as the creative block and the accomplishment cycle right um so they break down their milestones in different different projects wow. and they start working on those projects right um so, and all of this is being done on the internet. So the idea was to say that if internet has actually democratized uh, information, then let's make it real, right? Then actually it should not require a teacher. It should not require a volunteer. Also, it does not require 
what is known as you know uh, people should be given a pathway and all of that because people are smart everybody mm-hmm. is is inherently smart we are humans we are born to survive so that survival kicks in and you start seeing people go on internet they start finding information they start working on their projects and then something mm-hmm. else changes which is now there's no teacher there's no internet but there's something else that the nook has right which is all these people from their community right mm-hmm. and that is when they start collaborating so suddenly i don't have to compete with my peer i suddenly have to collaborate right because that's the only way i'll succeed mm-hmm. and that's where we start seeing magic happen we start seeing um 60 year old women uh, start learning how to play a guitar Uh, from like a 11 12 year old boy or um old, or they start building or they start looking at goals like i want to build an electric car um you know and i'll do it with this uh, this bunch of young boys who study science and i do it with them nice. right and, and then we start seeing those things wow. so very focused uh, goals smart goals uh, hands on project based learning but very intuitively connected to at every stage is this your choice is this what you are going for and gunning for and that that is a constant principle um the nook doesn't have a graduation period doesn't have a you know um graduating certificate right the nook is a community space um, anybody can keep coming back to it when they want to there are no set timings for them to come you can come when you want to learn you can you can learn a bunch of things go out there and see if they work for you if they don't then come back again and learn again and do whatever learning you want to do again and then go back out again so so it's it's, it's essentially a community self directed learning amazing i mean you've gotten down the best of all the possible worlds there i think uh being like going to schools where actually you have these facilitators and teachers nobody ever asks you what is your choice and what you would yeah. want to do yeah. that's number yeah. one and nobody ever uh, tells you that the person next to you is not a competitor but a collaborator like that never happens exactly. the first thing that i think you go to any any professional college you'll be like the person to your left the person to your right they're all your competitors <laughs> you better get the yeah. job before they do oh right. my god you you you've literally solved like i don't know how many chunks of the problem like right from the starting till the end that's amazing so um, tell me this uh, like how do you measure the success of i'm obviously i think the success of the program is when the person has built something or learned uh, finished learning a guitar but when it says like when somebody is wanting to become their first goal in in the in, at the beginning of the 3 months was to become something do you evaluate that at the end of 3 months and then set new goals or does anybody pivot and find another goal yeah they do they do so how we measure success is um from like a lot of different lens so at a community lens we measure success from uh, how many of the learners from the nook have gone out and solved community problems right that exists mm-hmm. um from a space design lens we measure success from to how many people the space feels like a safe learning space for them and helps them grow 
from an individual learner lens, we look at uh, the number of different kind of projects that an, a learner is uh, building, right? Which gives us also insights into a lot of different things in which they're building their skill sets. Uh, people absolutely change goals, pivot goals, and move on to something else. And I'll tell you something interesting that we learned about this phenomenon, by the way. You know, traditional schools, um, especially for young kids, right? You go to school today as young as two and a half, three, right? And then you put on this standardized template that there is math or science or geography or history, whatever. You have to complete this one full curriculum, right? And and periods are around it, right? That one hour of sitting and just this. What they do take into cognizance is that young children do not have that kind of an attention span. And therefore, for a young child, the motivation is to see something work and then move to something else. All right? Mm. And that is how young children learn. They don't mm. learn from becoming specialists at one thing. They don't. Absolutely. They actually learn moving from one to two or in quick succession of times because their attention span is focused on making something which work, right? Yeah. So we see that and we learned that ourselves through the notes that young people, you know, will pick up something, they'll quickly figure out, okay, this is how it works, this is how I can, I can build a quick mini robot, right? And then they want to move on to, uh, uh, in the next cycle, draw something. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. and the next school cycle, go and uh, build a stool. Right, in the next school, and that is actually how learning should be taking place, especially for young people. Right, so we don't uh, necessarily mark success as you know, you see, this is your goal, you go ahead and really achieve it because that again has to be their choice. Right, mm. uh, that again has to be individualized, contextualized. Right? And it's very easy for me to say, actually, like, oh, you know what, adults actually pick up one goal and then they finish it and then they reach here, right? But that also is not true because for adults, when they actually give a free case and actually start looking at the possibilities that exist, right? And they start exploring through project-based learning of what these possibilities are, right? It's directed by their own curiosity and you start seeing that they also pick up different goals. Because suddenly low-hanging fruits are not that enticing and they want to push their boundaries, they want to push for things that traditionally schools were not letting them, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. for us, we do see pivots and goals. We see new goals picked up. We see uh, actually goals across themes being picked up, right? Mm -hmm. And none of that is problematic for us at all at any point. Because the idea... The vision always is to learn how to learn and mm -hmm. not learn with a outcome that is again dictated by what job will you get with this tomorrow or mm -hmm. what employment will you get with this tomorrow, right? But it's very uh, focusedly driven from were you able to actually deep dive into yourself and explore mm -hmm. everything that you think your mind is really able to explore for yourself. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So it's like an entirely customizable curriculum yes. <laughs> to the person. That, that's amazing. So do you have a, do you, do you have neurologist or anybody that you consult on 
understanding these patterns or like did you research on a child's uh, attention span like before starting this or on on your job as uh, the founder like do you go ahead and understand what does it actually take to <laughs> explain something to a adult versus a child so honestly no i think we're very early in the game to kind of bring in uh, that layer of understanding uh, with the neurologists and learning professionals um we've not done that i think we will only attempt that and go into that kind of research when we scale and we scale mm-hmm. significantly and we have more data points to do that mm-hmm. uh, but i think a lot of our early learnings have come from the fact that we were very experimental in the first four years so between 14 and 16 we started early 14 we registered an organization only towards the end of 16 and mm-hmm. we spent close to 4 years just constantly experimenting with the model itself right so what happens there is that we were able to see these early patterns emerge right there because the noob mm-hmm. for us also was not a set in stone space right from day one um, we were very aware that noobs itself will uh, shape figure will change and what happens mm-hmm. in it will change and i think that's why we were able to really see these patterns emerge that for young children mm-hmm. uh, the attention span is very driven by how creative the project is for them whereas for adults mm-hmm. it's initially very driven by an outcome of you know where can this be mm-hmm. doing and but that can be, and that changes when you put an adult and a child in the same room right and i think a lot of our early data sets came because the space is age agnostic right mm-hmm. and and therefore adults break down a lot of their walls of understanding of themselves and they see a young child just being curious right and just wanting mm-hmm. to shift from one thing to the other to the other and then the adult is suddenly like you know why am i suddenly focused on just one thing whereas i think mm-hmm. i can learn if i build maybe four five things you know right. so so i think a lot of our early analysis has happened because we kept the nuke uh Uh, not a st- uh, static place, but we kept it to be a very uh, figure form sh- uh, changing space. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So, uh, tell me about some of the initiatives that are going on currently. Like, I think from two thousand fourteen till twenty twenty, there's been a lot of new things that have come up. I think I remember seeing a, a dash, a, a banner of that for ethical hacking. so like how do you bring in these new ideas or like let's start teaching this or let's uh, give them the uh, tools that they need to learn a, a new hot trend right now how does that go by so programs at defy have uh, always been created from the same vision that we will continue to innovate and we'll continue mm-hmm. to read look at um, how marginalized communities create their solutions and keeping and keeping democratic values at the core of it right so uh for the first i would say like until 2000 early 2018 um we stuck to the model of nooks with marginalized communities going into the communities and setting up these spaces right so mm-hmm. in 18 is when we said okay let's experiment with uh, can we do something similar with university students right mm-hmm. because in our understanding i think university students are far more marginalized like you know they definitely have no choice in what they do and uh, and we attempted that in across mm-hmm. um, six universities across india right wow. and we set up six spaces and did that for about 3 uh, years with our uh, partners 
and from there emerged an understanding of you know yes university students also need such spaces and mm -hmm. from there emerged what you see today is dash which is um, you know eight week boot camp for university students across india to join the program over eight weeks and across two tracks uh, with the same mm -hmm. kind of problem solving right so one track mm -hmm. focuses on really for somebody who who's absolutely passionate about solving a problem but doesn't know where to start right and unfortunately um, university labs don't promote that correct uh, they would rather that you finish your experiment and like move on to the next one so the learning track which we call solvenger uh, focuses really on anybody who has an idea and doesn't know what to do with it to come into the program pick up principles like design thinking uh, pick up principles like problem solving group thought Group cause analysis and go, and when they exit the eight weeks, they would have a prototype ready of whatever problem they came in with, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the second track, the pictures track, is more focused on um, university students, but who've taken a step ahead, which is they've created a prototype. Um, they kind of think they want to start their own enterprises, and the enterprise can be anything. It can be a nonprofit. It can be a collective. It can be anything. Um, and they want, and they want more training in that. So over eight weeks, mm -hmm. then they get trained on, you know, how do you go from prototype to MVP? How do you go from MVP to knowing mm -hmm. what kind of enterprise should you really have? You know, because there's also this thing, right? Look at the how, look at the way market dictates thing, right? So all you hear anywhere is the concept of startups, right? But the only thing that you hear about startups is the for-profit startups, right? Nothing else, right? Uh, but how do we change that? How do we get students to think of other ways of solving problems in the world? And uh, and that's how Dash emerged, honestly, to see if we can work with university students also um, and get them excited about problem solving. Um, in fact, we've, we've opened up the applications for Dash. We're inviting university students to join and, uh, and have a fun time, eight weeks. But again, collaboration. Um, everybody gets to team up. Everybody gets to have access to not just uh, the mentors that the program provides but more importantly to this whole group of incredible people that will come together right mm -hmm. um so that's how dash happened last year when the pandemic hit we also went back to the whiteboard and said how do communities get self-reliant when it comes to disasters yeah. Right, and uh, and this came from a question we were asking ourselves because we were also leading relief work for our communities, and it came from a very very philosophical question we asked ourselves that how is it that we the outsiders decide for that community what help should be given and how that help should be given to them, right? How is it that we dictate it? You know, and why is it that we dictated, mm -hmm. right? And uh, and that's how a new program was born. Uh, it's called Despect, where we're trying to reimagine disaster resilience uh, within marginalized communities. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we're very uh, my co-founder is an engineer, right? So all problems that we solve are broken down into chunks, right? So uh, so we've broken it down into segments trying to pilot mm -hmm. different segments and then put it together as a package and mm -hmm. and then see if we can give it off to communities and they can take it, run with it, contextualize it. Um, this mm -hmm. actually is 
interesting for us because it's a first open source program. So we're inviting other organizations to come with us. Wow. We're inviting different organizations to partner with us on this and build out these segments with us. So we don't want to be the SMEs on this at all. All we want to do is build out a whole package together and pass it on to the communities. So, nice. yeah, I think the core fundamentals remain same that we will work with marginalized communities, we will work on um, self-resilience, we will work on them coming up with the solutions. Uh, what we will do is really facilitate some of those building blocks and then move on and then exit that whole scenario. That's nice. It's actually nice to, I, uh, being an engineer myself, I can, I, I really love the way you had uh, broken it down to three months right from the beginning and how you mentioned that same approach is being used to break down any problem. That's, that's nice. Uh, helps you relate to this. And I think uh, when you started doing this, like it, it reminds me of how, I, I don't know why we don't do this. Every, every college has access to, uh, everybody has access to MIT open source uh, their education, the way Howard uh, runs their classrooms. We have access to all of these great institutions that we look up to in the way they actually run their uh, classrooms. Yeah. But what is stopping us from copying that or, or you know, uh, emulating from them the way actually a good classroom or good case study it can be, uh, you know, studied? Or, I mean, the way we right now run is it's a one way, it's like a radio. Uh, there's hardly any discussion that comes forward. Uh, what you have done is like a huge feat altogether, but uh, on on a general note, like what do you think is stopping us from changing the existing schools right now? So I think we have to be very cognizant of the history of education for that, right? The mm -hmm. history of education is actually only 400 year old and it was started in the industrialization period was started to build factories right i am quick anecdote i don't know if you know this uh, do you know why there are um why are children uh, segregated according to age group in the school system in the university system no. No, because no. Uh, the first school that ever began was during the factory era and you needed mm -hmm. to segregate people based on age so you could segregate what work they could really do in the factory and that is the foundation of our education system, by the way. All right. Okay. So, so, so we carry, right? So, especially the developing nations are carrying the burden of that system that was passed mm -hmm. down to us, right? We were passed down that education system of really segregating people, of putting people in rooms and just and just factory milling them to be prepared for corporate jobs, right? Only they were factory jobs, now they're corporate jobs, right? Mm. There is there is this huge, I think, legacy burden that we carry, especially in countries mm. like ours, where reimagining it means actually first acknowledging the burden of this legacy of colonialism, right? And saying that the system came from somebody else and mm -hmm. it was trusted on us and Sure, it looks like it, it's a fabulous thing to have, but it's not. Right? And then it needs to really look at how is it functioning now, which which you can't necessarily do until you're made to reconcile with the fact that the system was not even meant for us. 
right? Yeah. So I think that is why what we are seeing in education, whether it is NEP, whether it is RTE, are these tweaks mm -hmm. in the system, right? What mm -hmm. we start seeing is layering. You know what I mean? Like uh, building on top of it. Yeah, schools mm -hmm. don't work. Hey, all right, let's build in happiness curriculum, right? Just the language of it doesn't bother us anymore, right? Oh, university kids are not creative enough. Okay, let's set up maker spaces, right? Again, an imported concept, right? It came mm -hmm. from America to us, right? Mm -hmm. um, the number of fab labs that are going around in the country, right? Mm -hmm. It's some zero purpose, right? Um, so, so I think it's because somewhere the we haven't really been brave enough to take that risk of saying, can we go to the white world and first acknowledge that the system is broken. You can't fix it. It's not fixable. It has to be replaced. And for it to be replaced, you have to then acknowledge the fact that we are, India is still a country that is the outsourced destination for work, right? We still have more young people working in BPOs than we have people who are building yeah. solutions for the world, right? So I think that is why how the market has reinforced this onto us. The layering of economic parameters that the global economy has shut down to us, right? Percolates yeah. to this level where we have not been able to break out of our growth of saying that we are at a stage where we should not question this and a lot of it has to do with your gdp right it has to do with the fact that we still have larger percentage of our population living under poverty line what yeah. if that doesn't change then your only system you can see is that poor kids are given one meal at a school right mm -hmm. and and that's how you think you retain them so we've not questioned the legacy of it until you question the legacy of it, you cannot at all create a new solution. You will only fix the leaks that you think are leaks, right? Mm -hmm. Which which are not giving you more data points and instead putting you in a loop of constantly clearing solution or solution or solution, right? Which then just become kids get more burdened with like more stuff that they have to do and accomplish, right? And and that's what we stuck at. Sure. I mean, talking with you now, it, I feel as if Gurukulam was better uh, suited for India. Like, at least there, there was a... One thing was good for us, like, it, it was, I think, not more than 10 to 10 or 8 or 10 people with one teacher. And they went on to a journey of finding themselves out first. Like, that know thyself was one of the first things they did. Uh, something that you start your nooks with on, like, what is important to you. This part, I think we in in the rush of copying the west i think we've just let go of our own uh, original uh, schooling system and it wasn't even copied from the west remember we were colonized remember that the first montessori mm -hmm. was brought by the britishers right so remember it's not even copying so that's the mm -hmm. misnomer where we try to say we copy the west the fact of the matter mm -hmm. is things were thrusted on us as a colonized nation and most colonized nations still have the same system of education by the way right mm -hmm. and the only thing that they've not been able to do post independence most of these nations is that reimagine it for themselves right mm -hmm. because also when these nations got independent the focus obviously became on getting economically stable on getting all of these things going 
right? And therefore, this became like, okay, this is still working in some way or fashion, let it keep going, right? Till it becomes this massive problem. And I think most colonized nations across the globe have this passed down system and have not been able to innovatively look back and scratch off the system and create something new just mm -hmm. because, you know, it was something that was trusted on them and they kept going with it. So that's what I'm saying. The legacy of colonization has a lot to do with it. Got it. So when you started this, uh, I believe this is your first entrepreneurial role. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, did you, uh, like, when you started this, did you reach out to any of your family and friends who have done something in a, like, a business side before this? Was How was the journey no, from... I am, I'm a first-time entrepreneur, uh, first-generation entrepreneur, um, wow. in the family. I come from a very traditional family set. I have family in the military. So we come from mm -hmm. a very institutionalized government uh, background. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, my whole family serves the military. And uh, and yeah, I was just supposed to be on a very set path of probably becoming a lawyer and all of that. So there was no uh, data points to go back to in the family at all. So I, I say this, you know, I think folks like us are accidental entrepreneurs. I don't think we set out to be entrepreneurs, to be very honest. I don't think the vision ever was, you know, I'm going to set up this legacy nonprofit and, you know, that is the legacy. The organization was never considered the legacy. That's why we didn't even register for three years. I think we only registered because it, it became like this. We just had to, you know, we couldn't take funds anymore in our account. And then we had advisors who were like, guys, you really need an organization. So, uh, you know, uh, for me as an entrepreneur, I say this, that I don't think either of us set out to be entrepreneurs. I think both of us set out to be problem solvers and we were very keen on solving this problem. And defines an organization as a vehicle to do that. And, you know, we are hoping we can shut it down in the next 10, 15 years and move on and solve other problems and pass on whatever the loops can do to more partners, more organizations on the ground and just pass it on. But yeah, I think as an entrepreneur, uh, no, I didn't have anybody in the friend family circle to go to. Everything was not on the ground. I think till today we learn everything on the ground and uh, every lesson is a new lesson and you're just like, damn, I should have seen that coming. And then you go, and then you're just like, okay, well, sure, it goes into that book of, you know, things not to do. And uh, so I think it's, it's the same journey that every first generation entrepreneur has, which mm -hmm. is all your lessons are on on the world and uh, with everything that you're doing. So speaking on that note, like what would be your like top three challenges ever since you started this? I think you've come a long way from where it was just an experiment to, uh, I think it's reached more than 3,000, 8,000. I see the counter running on your website for how many people you've impacted. So uh, I was trying to understand like, what were your challenges as a, as a, I think you went from an advisor role and now it's the, like you kept changing roles within DeFi as well. So how was a, a small flashback and what were your top three challenges? Yeah, sure. You're right. So I actually uh, joined Abhijit in his journey as somebody who was funding the first move, to be very fair. And I was very excited about it. And I was like, you know, I can bring in um, the initial set of uh, funds and do that. And then in 16, took a call of saying, okay, let me do this full time and get started. Mm -hmm. 
So I think a few challenges was one was just acceptance of the idea, right? I realized that as much as the sector or the industry talks about innovation, it doesn't necessarily want innovation. You know, it just wants replication of existing ideas. And so to push through that, I think was the biggest challenge. It still remains the biggest challenge, to be honest. And um, I think we just made, just making peace with it comes with a little more maturity in the game, I would say. Uh, but definitely acceptance of the fact that we were not going to give you uh, better literacy numbers, or we were not going to give you uh, people who read better or write better, or, you know, but fundamentally looking at questioning the whole foundation of education. So just the acceptance of something as radical as that um, was something we dealt with. Uh, also, the young entrepreneurial ecosystem in the country was growing, was just starting out at that time. So to find that uh, was uh, difficult, was challenging, right? What you have in India are either these very legacy nonprofits, right, who have been existing for 20, 25 years, are considered like, you know, the grandpas of the ecosystem, right? Uh, what, what we did have is this... Um, this community of emerging entrepreneurs who really wanted to problem solve. So finding those people, right, finding your tribe um, was uh, challenging initially and a little lonely, I would say, in that way. And um, and just saying that, you know, young entrepreneurs don't want to replicate what has existed, but really want to question everything. I think it's gotten a little better with time in India. Uh, there are more and more of those coming around. Uh, so I was, uh, that's nice to see now. Um, and then, of course, came just the challenges of really figuring how to set up and run an organization. I think um, mm -hmm. that is something that I believe, I hope gets easier for entrepreneurs who follow because that in itself can be such a dreadful thing to deal with because there is no template, right? Um, we we yeah. exist in a country where policies change overnight, where uh, legalities change overnight, where bureaucracy, rectatism uh, stops you from really pushing ahead. So I think the early years were the real struggle with like, you know, we don't have a tax um, exemption certificate. So now how do you really keep working, keep scaling when funding in India is dependent on that, right? So mm -hmm. I think as a young nonprofit, just being able to maneuver all of those um, spaces and to keep all the balls up in the air, I think uh, was one of the biggest challenges that we've, uh, we've faced for sure. So uh, talking about uh, policies, uh, how was it, how difficult was it to get started in Zimbabwe and, and Bangladesh? Like, did you have people who had to, I mean, did you have to go there and find people who would work for Defy uh, or were they supportive enough? Did you collaborate with NGOs there? What was that like? So the most interesting part about our journey at Defy has been that the idea has found more resonance outside the country than within the country and um, has found amazing support outside the country. So uh, one of the early decisions we took at Defy was that we do not want to set up thousands and thousands of looks under Defy's operations. We want to pass on the knowledge to more and more organizations that are experimenting in the space of education and align with 
our vision. So uh, we have set up all the rooms outside the country with partners. So we have found um, grassroots organizations that are very interested in self-directed learning, opening up community spaces to do it, and we've partnered with them. We've brought in funders uh, from our network for funding these, and that's how we set it up. And that, that will be the vision going forward, where we are trying to create what we're calling a loop network, which is a global consortium of partners, which will be funders, uh, grassroots organizations, researchers, all of them coming together to set up moves across the globe and they will be owned and managed and run by different partners in different locations so that in about 10 or 15 years we can shut down the pipe because we would have passed on all the knowledge know-how of doing it to everybody else in the world so that's that's how we grew outside and that has informed also our scale strategy it's almost like I'm imagining Avengers Shield uh, being created for the purpose of education. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's awesome. So, uh, like, my final question. what You do so many things, but uh, I know you love poetry and music. So there's this line uh, in uh, the Summer Day poem by Mary Oliver. It says, tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? <laughs> what would your answer be to that? Well, I really plan to just use as much of it as to make a difference in in the world around me. You know, I really think I may not be able to solve every problem, but I will die knowing that I tried and I gave all if all of my all, you know, uh, and that I attempted to solve some of the problems that exist around me. So I think that is what will always stay uh, for me, yes. One thing I definitely want to take to my grave. Thank you so much, Mega. I mean, you have been an inspiration years ago. You still are. I do look up to you. And I'm sure this is going to be one of those inspiring episodes. Thank you so much. All the best for all the work you do. Thank Wishing you, you all Thank the you success. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me over. This was super exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See ya. That's it for today. Hope you liked it. If you enjoyed this episode, do share it with your friends. And don't forget to hit follow on Spotify and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Stay tuned for more episodes and stay safe.